Hi there. I hope you guys are excited because this is going to be probably one of the best sermons you've ever heard. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm just like, when I got done with it, I was like, man, this is good. This is going to be, seriously, you're going to walk out and you're going to, if you could post this sermon on your fridge, you would do that. So we're not going to waste any time. We're going to be diving right into the topic today of pride and humility. And um, so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be, um, it's 822 in your, your chair Bible. And we're going to be continuing on our, our, our sermon series on Mark. And um, there's a story of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan went to Mexico City. And he, he did a speech. And he got done. And there was like, you know, a couple, a little smattering of applause. And he sat down. He was kind of like, well, that was pretty discouraging. This guy gets up and he starts speaking, but he's, he's speaking in Spanish. And he doesn't understand anything that's being said. <clears throat> but he's embarrassed to say anything. But he's getting like, everyone's just cheering and clapping and yelling. And so Ronald Reagan's like, now I'm just kind of embarrassed. They didn't like what I had to say. And so, but he didn't want anyone to know that he didn't understand what was being said. So he starts clapping before everybody else, louder than everybody else, and longer than everybody else, because he wants to make sure that he fits in. And the guy next to him nudges him and says, you might want to stop. He's just interpreting your speech. And so here's Ronald Reagan clapping and cheering for what he had said that's just being interpreted for everyone. And so you, you, you think of that, and he's probably thinking, oh, these people think, what, what's wrong with this guy? He's just so excited about the words that he said. When we think of pride and humility, I mean, there's a lot of um, different ways to go with that. I came in, and I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm pretty humble. But then I came in, and, and about 20 people said, found out that I was preaching, and they left. And so I was like, that just kind of brought it to another level on humility or so. Um, so Mark chapter 10, we're going to start, we're going to break this apart. It's going to be, we're going to be going 30, 32 to 45, but we're just going to break it apart and discuss it a little bit here. So Mark chapter 10, 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So here we have, if, if you've been following this series with Pastor Matt, we have the third time that Jesus is talking to his disciples about what's about to happen. But as he's saying it this time, they're on the road to Jerusalem where this is going to happen. They're traveling, and, and you look at it, and the people are astonished, and it says that they're astonished and they're afraid. Part of it is they, they might know a little bit about what's coming, but as they're walking, Jesus is sitting down and saying, Here, here's what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 8, so just a couple chapters before, Jesus tells them, he goes, about the necessity. He goes, I must suffer, and I must go through this. And this is the famous time when Peter, one of the disciples, comes up and he says, never happened. I'll be there. I'll defend you. And said that, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is not. I'm just going to tell you right now, if Jesus calls you Satan, that's not a good thing. I mean, like, Peter wasn't like, yes. So, so, so the first time Jesus is saying, hey, this, this, is, this must happen. And then we get to uh, Mark chapter 9, 
And Jesus talks about the certainty. He goes, this is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. And the Bible talks about the fact that here the disciples are confused. They're trying to figure out what he's talking about. And the third time is what we just read here. And then Jesus gets into the details. He says, I'm going to be betrayed, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be condemned, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and rise again. So Jesus is laying out, this is really where we're heading to. This is about, this is what's about to happen. So prepare yourself. And so you would think the disciples are like, all right, we're starting to get this. But look at who Jesus is dealing with. If you think you get people that are around you, and sometimes you say something, and you just know that they're just not getting it. All right, let's just be honest. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You say something, and they're just like, huh. You know, they don't. They may nod because it's like, just to do that. But they're not getting it. Here, the disciples are probably doing the same thing. Okay, all right. We get it. We get it. And so then we go on. After he has just announced this, he just told them for the third time, this is what's going to happen. We go to um, verse 35, Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized in the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. <clears throat> if you read this, this um, version of it in Matthew, Matthew talks about the fact that James and, and John's mother is the one that comes up to Jesus. So between them, James and John's mother, they come up and they say, hey, right after Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. Prepare yourself. James and John come up and say, hey, you know what? That's, that's, that's good. That's, a good. that's good. But hey, you know, I got, we got something we want to ask you. When the time comes when you're sitting on your throne, remember, and this time, sitting on the right hand of a king was like the place of honor. It means you were close in proximity, and you were someone that he would listen to, and on the left was the next place. So James and John come up, and they go, hey, Jesus, when that happens, when, when, you, when you're on your kingdom, um, we like to be on your right and left. Don't care which side. You, know, you, you choose. We, you know, we'll give you that option. You choose right, left, left, right. We don't care as long as we're there. Okay, and, and so Jesus is probably, as he's looking at it, just shaking his head going, what's the Greek word for morons? Because here are these guys following me, and they're not getting it. All they're thinking about is, hey, you know what? There's going to come a time when Jesus is going to be on his throne and there's going to be two empty seats. Someone's got to fill that. Why not us? Because you've got to understand, James, John, and Peter, and we're going to look at at this in a minute, it's like those are the three main dudes with Jesus. When things happened with Jesus, those were the three that were with him. You had the 12 disciples, but then Jesus took these three and he went off at certain times with just them. And so they're thinking, hey, you know what? Peter's just... A knucklehead. So let's just kind of see if we can get those two seats. And, and, and so as we're looking at this, they make this request. And then Jesus goes on and he says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized in the baptism? And it's kind of confusing. But when you look at it throughout scripture, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. 
what's about to happen is Jesus is going to die on the cross. He's going to incur the, the wrath of God. And so it talks about the cup that, that he's going to take. He's going to take that on himself. The Bible talks about the fact that Jesus, right before he died, he went up to the garden, and he went out and he prayed, and he said, God, if there's any way to take this cup from me, please do that. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So when he's going to the disciples saying, can you, to, to, to James and John, can you take this cup on you? Can you be baptized? Can you be fully immersed into what's about to happen to me? And their answer is, yeah, we can. And then Jesus comes back and he tells you will. He says, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized in the baptism I'm baptized with. So in other words, you're not going to be dying on the cross, but you're going to be suffering. There's, you're going to go through the suffering that I'm going through. Because you followed after me. And if you look through scripture, you look at all the disciples and how they ended up dying because they said, I'm, we're going to stand for Jesus. And all of them, but John was, John was sent off on an island and he ended up dying there. But the rest of them, you know, if, if you look at how they died, it's not something pleasant. So Jesus said, that's going to happen. But he, then he goes on and says, but for, for me, it's not my choice as far as who sits on the right or left. He goes, that's not for me to have. That's for God. So James and John, are, <clears throat> they made the request. And then we go on and we think the other, the other ten are the holy ones because they're the ones who didn't dare ask such a crazy thing. So then we go on to verse 41. <clears throat> when the ten heard about this, about their, James and John's request, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, <clears throat> You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we have the disciples. And we see it, and you can think, oh, the disciples are just indignant. They're just upset because how dare James and John ask such a thing of Jesus. But if you look at it and you look at like some of the other verses that we're going to look at, they're just mad because they didn't think of it first. They're just like, oh, James and John, I can't, you, I can't believe you guys would do such a thing. And they're, they're thinking, man, I wish we were smart enough to, to have thought of that. So, but they're upset, and all of a sudden they start this, this, this little conflict, and Jesus comes up and he says, look, you know the rulers of the Gentiles and how they, how they, look, how they work, how the leaders kind of lord the power over them. And, and not so among us. He goes, if you want to be great, you've got to serve. So there are at least three times when the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. And there's probably more, but three recorded times that we see where the disciples are arguing over, hey, we're the inner circle. There's 12 of us. Jesus picked us. I mean, I was just out fishing, and all of a sudden Jesus came up, just grabbed me and said, here, come, come with me. You know, another one's like, I'm just collecting money, stealing money from people, and Jesus comes here, come follow me. And so they're like, man, we are, we are there. We are the inner circle. And then they start arguing, like a lot of us do, as far as, but which one's really greater? I mean, we can't be equal, like, twelves. I mean, there's one, one's got to be greater. It's kind of like when you, when you cut up a cake or pizza or something like that, and you cut it, every, you know, you're always looking for which one's, there's one a little bigger than the others. They're not, they're not perfect. And you're, and you're always arguing over which one, which one that is. So here's what, where they're at. And, and so right at, in, in Luke chapter 9, right after the transfiguration, James, John, and Peter 
go up with Jesus, they see this incredible thing where God comes down and he says, this is my son, Jesus, who I'm, I'm well pleased. And, and they're standing and they see this and they're in awe. And they come down and it says that Jesus ends up healing a demon-possessed boy. And then right after it, it says that the disciples started arguing over who's the greatest. And it's like, are you kidding me? And then it goes on in Mark chapter 10, the passage we looked at today. After Jesus gets done sharing what's going to happen, they come up and they're arguing over who the greatest is. And then we get to the Last Supper. You would think by now, right before Jesus is about to be betrayed and taken and crucified, you'd think at this point the disciples would finally get it. They'd finally get all that Jesus is teaching about that. Hey, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. You've got to serve others. Don't try to lord it over them. Don't try to be number one. You'd think at that point they would get it. But it comes up, and we, and we see that right there, right after the, the Last Supper, as Jesus is kind of saying, I'm about ready to, to be betrayed. I'm going to die and rise again. What happens? You read on, the disciples go, which one do you think is the greatest? And they still aren't getting it. And so when we look at it, we say they, they have this problem. They, they're not grasping it. But before we start getting too onto them, we have that same issue at times. And we want to look, if you're in your notes, we're going to start here. The first thing we want to look at is that God hates pride. And, and, and we're going to look at what that means. Proverbs 8, 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. He goes, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, perverse speech. Here is God in Proverbs, and he says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. The Hebrew word for hate in this verse, is sane. And it basically, it means to detest or be an enemy of. So God looks out and he says, these people that are proud and arrogant, he goes, I detest that. I'm an enemy of that. And so he, it's pretty harsh what he's saying there. And then it goes on in Psalm, in Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And this was written in Psalms. Can we just say that that relates totally to our culture today? A lot of people are out there going, I don't have any room for God. I'm too busy kind of doing my thing, trying to get up the corporate ladder, do what I got to do to get ahead. I don't have room for God because he's going he's gonna to slow me down. So as we look at this and we look at the, the disciples and how they struggle with it, and then we start to look at the people around us, Let's be careful that we don't start to think, boy, those people are messed up. It's a good thing that in the church we don't have that problem. Because if you look at the people that Jesus went after more than anyone else in the Bible, it was the religious leaders, the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he goes through and seven times he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you religious leaders, you teachers of the law. And the word for woe, the Greek word there is ui, great grief, Severe calamity, blameworthy and evil. So he says, I got great grief. There's severe calamity coming because of the fact of what you're doing. Because these religious leaders would sit there and they would tell other people how to live, what to do, the rituals and all this stuff like that. But yet when it came time for them, they weren't interested in doing it. They wanted other people to jump through these hoops and do all these things, but they weren't going to do it themselves. So Jesus ends up calling them hypocrites. 
acting or pretending, telling others what to do that they don't do themselves, or looking down on others because they're not as spiritual as themselves. We hear the story of the guy who, who the religious leader who stood outside and he saw the sinner going in. The sinner went in and just beat his breast and said, I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee, the religious leader says, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. And it may be where sometimes we sit there and go, we say, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. The Pharisee say, thank you that I'm not like that sinner, like that guy out there. And we can sit there and sometimes say the same thing. Thank you that I'm not like that person. I'm not as bad as the other person out there. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's Jesus, and he's saying, you come up and you look at somebody and say, boy, look how they're struggling. If they could just get their act together. And Jesus is saying, you know, that's a speck. And they're like, you've got a plank. You've got a log in your eye, and you're sitting there looking at somebody else's and saying they got a speck there. He goes, take care of yourself first, and then you can help that person there. Because a lot of times we don't want to look at where we're at. In the New Testament, we're told to, to put on humility, to be clothed in humility, to walk in humility. Man, this is tough. It is tough to do that. So pride is the defining sin. When you, when you look at humanity, pride is the defining sin. Almost all other sins come from pride. When we look at the, the sins in our, in our life, most of the time it's because there's something that we want. There's something that we feel like that's going to make things better for me. And we, and we fall into that. So if we look at this, there's a bad example we want, we want to look at of leadership when it comes to pride. Rehoboam was a king, and he was Solomon. Most people know about King Solomon, the, the wise, wise king. Well, his son comes in, and he takes over. And here's what we hear is in 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam came to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned to Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father, Solomon, during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you today will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, gave them, and consulted the young men who he had grown up with and, and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said. Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. 
So Rehoboam has a chance to be the leader that God has called them to be, where he says, if you serve these people, they will serve you. So he, he starts out well. He goes, my father had these great advisors, these elders. I'm going to go to them, and, and, and they tell him this advice. Just be a servant to them. Be the leader that God wants you to be, and you're going to have them. They're going to be serving you, and you're going to be fine. But he does what a lot of us do. He goes, and he goes, all right, you know what? I'm rejecting that. Now I'm going to go to my friends. I'm going to go to my peers. And I just think of this as kind of like a teenager who's making a big decision. And they, they go to the parents and say, Mom, Dad, what should I do? And then all the parents, we sit down and we give them the greatest advice in the world because we're parents. And, and you know, and, and the kids should just be like, that's amazing. But what they do, they go, eh. And then they go to their peers who are struggling with the exact same thing. And they say, yeah, what do you think we should do? And they end up doing that. And a lot of times they come back later and they go, I don't get it. I don't get what happened here. Well, that's where Rayobone was at. He's listening to the advice of these people around him because they were, it says that they were serving him. So they're, I mean, so th these are people his age and, and friends that he grew up with. And so when we think of leadership, the question to ask, if, if you're in any kind of position of leadership, the question to ask is, who are you getting your advice from when it comes how to lead? Who are you listening to? Because we're all listening to somebody. I've got a, a, a good friend of mine, a former pastor that I worked with, that, I, that whenever there's something that comes up, any question I have about anything like that, I'll just call him and say, hey, I've got to run this by you. What do you think of this? Here's something I'm struggling with, or here's something that I'm, I'm working through. And <clears throat> he's one that I'll go to, and I say, I know I'm going to get wise counsel from them. And we all need to have those kind of people. Rehoboam decided he was going to go a different way. <clears throat> then we have some good examples of leadership. So we think of leadership, we think of some people that God used. Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 18, 27, <clears throat> he's pleading with God to spare the people of Sodom. God looks at Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, man, these people are sinful. I'm going to destroy them. So Abraham goes to God and says, <clears throat> now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. So Abraham goes, God, I'm coming to you, even though I know I'm just dust and ashes. I know I'm nothing but I want to come to you. Moses, in Genesis 3, 10 and 11, he says, God says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And this is literally what Moses says. But Moses says to God, um, uh, who, 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 who am I that, that I should go? It's like, bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And he goes on and he talks about the fact that, man, I can't even speak. I stutter no one's going to listen to me. And so part of it, we can sit there and say there's humility, but there's also that, that part of it is it's kind of like, does he not trust God that God's going to do this? But Moses, Abraham, they knew where they were when it came to the circle of life. They knew where they ranked as far as them and God. David, King David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 and 19. When King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. So here is one of the greatest kings of all time, and he comes up and says, I'm a mere human. Who am I that you're going to use me? And, and then we got Gideon in, in Judges 6, 
the Lord turned to him and said, go, to, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hands. I am, not, am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So he goes, my family is the smallest in Manasseh, and I'm the, I'm the smallest in that family. I'm the least in there, and you're going to use me. And, and if, if you look at Gideon, that's a cool story to go back and look at, just how God used him. But he did it in a way that, that God said, I'm going to get the glory. This isn't going to be something where people go, look at Gideon, what a great warrior. God said, the glory is going to be mine. And, and, and he showed him how, how that was going to happen. And then we've got John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, 26, John says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know, speaking of Jesus. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John said, I'm not even worthy to, to bend down and, and untie his sandals of this man that's coming. But God used these people because they understood who they were. They understood God and they understood themselves. Humble people don't think less of themselves as much as they think of themselves less. Because sometimes we get it to where, oh, that person's humble because they just kind of tear themselves down. Oh, I'm nothing. That's not always ne necessarily humility. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to say this because I want someone to kind of say, no, no, you're good. You got, you, you got this. It's more of, I don't want to think of myself as much as I think of others or God. So God honors humility. We understand that. James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And again, as we look at these words, when God says he opposes the word there is antitasso, which means to battle against. So we've got that he hates pride. He opposes the proud. He's battling against. So if we're living our lives and we're thinking, I've got it all together, and, and I'm, I'm pretty proud, we've got to understand that we're in, we're in a battle, and that battle is against God. And I think that most of us would sit there and say, we're going to lose that battle. And so we've got to understand that when it comes to pride, that that's what God is saying. Jesus is the perfect example of humility. When we look at Jesus' life, Philippians chapter 2 gives us a, a great example of what humility is. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And he tells us, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In being in, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the Bible says, when you're dealing with relationships with one another, take Jesus' example. Here he was, God himself. He came down, became a human. And all of us here know our hearts. We know how bad we can be. But God came down and said, I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to walk among them. And he humbled himself, and it says, even to death, death on a cross. So he modeled for us what he wants us to do for others. That we need to sit there and say, I'm willing to give up whatever rights I have if it'll help somebody else. Jesus was willing to do that. Put others first to serve others. The world's idea of greatness, the culture around us, idea of greatness is to promote ourselves. You look around in the business world today, 
and everyone's stepping on each other to try to get a promotion, to try to get a, a, a better job, or whatever it is. We're kind of running over everyone to get there. And the question to ask, and, and that's just in the business world, and if we look at in politics today, very few people would argue that, man, most politicians, there are some good ones out there, but most politicians are just kind of like, man, I just got to make a name for myself, whatever it takes. The question I want to ask you is, what is it that you're willing to compromise in the position you're in, whatever that is? What are you willing to compromise to get ahead? What are you willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to kind of compromise on that if it'll help me. When I, was, when I was in the military, it was crazy the things people would do to try to, to get ahead and to kind of look, look good in someone else's eyes. I was, I was in there, and anyone that knows me knows that I'm just kind of the person. I'm, Peter is kind of one of the, the characters I can relate to in the Bible, one of, those, one of those guys that I can relate to because, man, I'm there. He'll, he'll say something and then think, I wonder if I should have said that. I do that all the time. Whether it's with my kids, my wife, or anyone, I sit there and I say something, and then I think. So it's all, a whole idea of say it, then think. Well, God's, God's like, man, you ought to think first. And there are many times that he's kind of hit me in the head with that. But in the military, I'm going to just tell you right now, it's not a good practice to live that way in the military. To say something and then think, I wonder if I should have said that. We had a colonel come in one time, and he's, he's saying something. And as he's saying it, it's one of those things, I don't even know, it's like one of those things where, hey, this carpet is bright pink. And I have like five or six guys around me, and they're looking, they go, yeah, yeah, it's bright pink. Because they were like, we're not going to say anything. I mean, if you picture in the military, here I was, a military, the lowest rank is a one, and it goes up to general, who's like an 18. I'm a two, so there's at least someone I can step on. But I'm like a two, and I get this colonel that walks in, and he's like a 16. All right, so you picture all these people in between. And so he comes up and he says, this carpet's pink. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it's pink. And here I am. What? That makes no sense. And then he comes up and he goes, Jenkins. And right then I was like, oh, I'm in so much trouble. You never want to hear your name. You want to just kind of blend in. That's what I've been told, okay? He comes, Jenkins. And I'm like, dude, I'm a two. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to the four, my sergeant. He comes up, what do you think about whatever it was he said? Well, my first thought was, oh, please, anyone else. Just ask anyone else. And I can guarantee you my sergeant is like, oh, no. <laughs> like, he's sitting there going, going to go find a new job. Gotta find, you know? and, and I came up, and I'm just thinking, and I was like, that's just weird. <laughs> that's just what I did. He comes up late and he goes, thank you for being honest. And I was like, and then he left. And I tell you what, our relationship the next three years was pretty good. That one time that I met him in, in passing, you know. But it's just that idea that that's just the way it was. And it's like, but all these other guys, and I talked to him afterwards, and I said, he said the carpet's pink. You know it's not pink. And he goes, man, you do not argue with him. You just, and I was like, I couldn't do that. I couldn't say that because I, what if that guy ever did ever come up and talk to me again? He would know that I'm just going to say whatever he wanted to hear. And so that's, that's the thing that, that I'm, I'm just pretty stubborn that way. I remember I was working at a, um, a men's gift store. And this was back in like 1989. And I'm working there. And my boss comes up and he goes, I got another store on the other end of the mall that I want you to manage. He goes, but first you've got to do 
these things that I'm asking. I'm like, all right. And he goes, anytime a customer walks in, and now you kind of remember, if you're in a Walmart or Lowe's or something like that and you walk in, it's almost impossible, am I right, to, to find anyone who works there? Like in an, if, you're, if, you're, if, if you're not looking for them, they're everywhere. But as soon as you're like, boy, I need to ask a question, good luck. I mean, they, they see customers and they just rah, run, you know. It's like cockroaches when the light comes on. But here I am. My boss comes up and he says, anytime a person walks into the store, not a real big store, I want you to go up to them and I want you to follow them around. And anytime they pick something up, you've got to describe it and you've got to tell them all about it. And I was like, okay. I said, I'm going to just tell you right now, I would hate that. If I walk in and I'm just kind of shopping and I'm like, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm just browsing. I don't want somebody coming up going, hey, you know, but here I am. I have to go up there. They pick up a coaster. And I got to go, that's a coaster. And you know what you do with a coaster? You take a glass, you put it on the coaster. And I got to sit there and describe this thing. And the guy's like, I know what a coaster is. Leave me alone. My boss is watching. So I'm like, okay. Then he goes over and he picks up these glasses. That's the glass. You put that glass on that coaster. And it's really cool. And, and so my boss is like, that's what I want you to do. And I told, I told him, I said, I can't do this. If I wanted that promotion, if I wanted to end up running this other store and managing that store, I had to sit there and do something that I didn't like people doing to me. And so I had to sit there and go, is it worth it? Well, it wasn't. But a lot of times we look at that and we say, it's worth it. Even though I don't like it, but I'm going to do it to someone else because it's going to get me ahead. We've got to ask ourselves, what is it that we're willing to compromise? Small or big? And we may sit and go, that's not a big deal like that. But those small compromises, understand those small compromises end up leading to bigger ones. Because once we start to compromise on small things, we start to think, ah, that's not that bad. I'll just go a little bit. And we end up with the frog in the kettle. A lot of us know about the frog in the kettle. When you put a frog in boiling hot water, it's going to jump out. Put it in lukewarm water, get it comfortable, and he does, you know, backstrokes, and it's just laying there in this little raft and going, oh, this is great. Turn the heat up a little, 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 and all, all of a sudden the frog boils to death because it doesn't realize what's going on. And that's what Satan will do, us, do to us a lot of times is we'll compromise in a small way and we'll think that's not that big of a deal. And then we'll compromise in another small way that's a little bit more than the first. And down the road, all of a sudden, we look and we say, boy, I never would have done that a year ago or two years ago. But now here I am making these decisions and so we just got to be careful as far as what is it that we're willing to give up. It's interesting that Forbes magazine, so Forbes, like, you know, this is not a, like a biblical company, came out in March of 2015, and it said, companies with humble leaders had more engaged workforce and less turnover. The, Forbes got it, that a company went through this whole thing of seven characteristics of humble leaders. And one of them was a company with with humble leaders had less turnover in their people and the workforce was more engaged in what was going on because that, that leader understood what it meant to be a servant. And that's what, that's what they, they said and they took it. I mean, that's right from what Jesus says. So God's idea of greatness. So we got the world's idea of greatness is promote myself, put myself out there. God's idea of greatness is to d deny self. To deny myself, which is totally opposite of everything in our culture. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our culture says about leadership is you've got to go out there 
and you've just got to do whatever it takes to get ahead. And that's in the world. That's also in churches. The sad commentary is I've worked in churches where I had a pastor come up and say, I'm the senior pastor, you're the youth pastor. I'm the CEO, you're the junior CEO. You've got to act that way. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I mean, first of all, it's a CEO, you know, but then second is like, what does that mean in a church? I mean, how does, how does that, that look? But a lot of times, you even get pastors that'll sit there and they'll say, hey, you know what, I'm the CEO, I'm the, I'm the head of this, this business, and everybody works for me. And if you, ha- you have that mindset, you start to think that way. You start to think everyone there serves me, is, is working for me. And I told him, I said, I'm not comfortable with that at all. And I'm going to just tell you right now, because it's on tape, and, and if Matt listens to this, I'm glad that we have Matt, who doesn't have that mentality here at this church. We are blessed with that. So two points for, for me on that. So just somebody make sure that Matt, that you listen to this. So, um, but then I had another pastor. I've I, I, I been around. It's like I had another pastor who came in, and this was back in um, George Bush's day with, with Katrina, Katrina. And um, he came in, sat down, and he said, you have to be like the president of Air Force One who circles around Katrina and ends up going back to Washington, D.C., and I remember telling him there, I said, maybe that's your style, but my style is, hey, if there's work to be done, I want to get down there, take a shovel, and say, this is what needs to be done, and at least show them what needs to be done. And no, I couldn't stay down there if I was a president, but I, I want to sit there and say, this isn't beneath me. This isn't something that you do. I, I'm, I don't want to have any part of that. Then he'd come, he'd come up later, and he said, a real leader tells a person what to do, and they just do it. This isn't a church that this happens. So churches aren't immune to this, to this craziness that we have. So as we think of that, that mindset, there's a story of um, there was a rider who came across a few soldiers, and they were trying to move a heavy log of wood without success. So a corporal is standing there watching these men struggle. The rider couldn't believe what he was seeing, so he went up to the corporal and he said, why aren't you helping? And the corporal said, I'm a corporal. I give orders. So the rider said nothing in response. Instead, dismounted the the horse, went up, and stood by the soldiers, and as they tried to lift the wood, and he helped them. With this help, the task was finally able to be carried out. That rider was George Washington, the commander-in-chief. One of his corporals says, this is beneath me. I give the orders, they do it. Here comes the commander-in-chief, comes up, and he says, this is crazy. He gets off his horse, he gets down there, and he says, let's get this thing done. And another story with, with George Washington is that later they came to a place where they had to leap over a wall and they're riding horses. One of the horses knocked off a number of stones from the wall. Washington said, we better replace them. His friends told them, oh, let the farmer do it. So they're going through this field and there's this wall there. The horses jump over and one of the horses kicks down this wall, knocks down the wall and the stones fall off. And, it, and George Washington's there and his friends go, let the farmer do it. It's his land. But Washington didn't feel right about it. When the riding party was over, he went back the way they came. He found the wall and dismounted. Then he carefully replaced each of the stones. His riding companion saw what he did and said, you're too big to do that. His response was, on the contrary, I'm just the right size. We have to understand that a lot of times we go through life and we think that we're bigger than we really are. And you may not be in a position of like 
great leadership and you say, this doesn't really relate to me. It relates to all of us no matter where we're at because we can sit there and we can listen to people who say, boy, you're too big for that. And our head can get to where it's too big for that. George Washington had it right when he said, no, I am just the right size. If I'm able to serve somebody else, that's what Christ has called us to do. If I'm able to go out there and help somebody in need, Christ says, that's the example I set for you. That's what I want you to do. See, pride focuses on self. What's in it for me? Humility focuses on Christ, which in turn makes us focus on others. So pride is, I'm looking at myself. Humility is, I'm going to focus on Christ and others. Humility is realizing we can't do anything to get right with God. See, if we're a proud person, we're not going to come to the point where we understand that we're sinners and that we have no chance of being right in God's eyes because we're going to think, I can do this on my own. Humility is saying, I am messed up. I'm a sinner. And it started back with Adam and Eve. And it's carried on to where we're all born sinners. And if we're humble enough to understand that and realize that, then we understand as Jesus was walking with his disciples to be crucified on the cross, we understand what that was for. The crucifixion, crucifixion and the resurrection was for us to make us right with God, a relationship that was broken because of our sin, and to make that right. As we close here, this is something that just came to me that I thought was really kind of cool, is, is pride created sin from the fall. Pride created sin with Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. Satan came up and said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to be like God. You're going to know things that God knows. And they said, wow, I want that. So pride created sin. Humility conquered sin. Because of Christ's humility, that he would humble himself and die on a cross, sin is conquered. That's the only way that sin is conquered. It's because of Christ. So we need to understand that, that pride created sin, and humility conquered sin. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you did conquer sin. As we look at our lives, Lord, no matter where we're at, whatever position you've put us in um, in, in this, this life, Lord, there's, there's so many times that we can be proud and we can get caught up in thinking that we're too big for something. Lord, I pray you just help us to understand from your example that you came to serve and you've called us to serve. I pray you help each one of us to realize that and, and to know that our sin separated us from you. But Lord, because of Christ and his humility, he's made that right if, if we choose that. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.